Hello and welcome to this, the second of the UCL uh, European Institute's podcasts. My name's Tim Beasley-Murray, I'm Senior Lecturer in European Thought and Culture, and it's a huge pleasure to be able to welcome today Philippe Sands. Uh, Philippe Sands is Professor here uh, at Laws, um, and he is an academic expert on international law, but he's also a practicing barrister who's acted in a range of high-profile international cases, dealing with matters such as the former Yugoslavia, Rwanda, and so on. Um, and we're here today to discuss um, his most recent book, East West Street, that I have in front of me, on the origins of genocide and crimes against humanity. And this book has been a huge success. I've just heard the range of languages it's going to be uh, translated into. And it's out in paperback today and will be the Waterstones Book of the Month for April. So welcome, Philippe. It's really nice to be here with you, Tim. And it's also particularly nice to be doing this at UCL as sort of part of the broader UCL family. Great. Great. Well, thank you. Now, as, as, as you will have uh, worked out uh, from, from the introduction I've given, Philippe is someone uh, with an extraordinary number of different facets. In fact, he's also worked on adaptations of his work for the stage and mus musical productions and so on. So he's a man of many facets. And this book that you've written here is also one that has a whole number of different dimensions. On the one hand, it's about ideas. It's about these two ideas, genocide and crimes against humanity, and their intellectual genealogy and the way in which they compete compete and complement each other in the 20th century. But on the other hand, it's a deeply personal book. And I was wondering whether we could start with that. One of the epigrams of the book, you talk about um, the way in which we're haunted by the gaps of the secrets of others. And, and there are family secrets here. And I was wondering if you could tell us about the way in which um, you came to how you felt about filling in those family gaps and discovering those family secrets. Sure. Well, I have my world. Uh, teaching uh, my wonderful students at UCL and occasionally doing cases in international courts and tribunals. And I have my family life. Uh, and the two seem to have come together sort of, uh, in a sense, by accident in the writing of this book. I got an invitation to deliver a lecture in the city of Lviv, now in the Ukraine, at the law faculty, uh, back in 2010, uh, I accepted the invitation not because I had a burning desire to go to the Ukraine or Lviv, but because it happens to be the city in which my grandfather was born in 1904, and I wanted to see if I could find the house in which he was born. So I spend a summer doing my research, and I discover that the lecture that I'm invited to give on my work on crimes against humanity and genocide, and just to pause on the distinction between the two, Crimes Against Humanity comes into international law in 1945. It's about the protection of individuals. Genocide also comes into international law in 1945, but it's about the protection of uh, groups. And what I discover in that summer is that the origins of both concepts may be traced not only to the city of Lviv, but to the very law faculty who had invited me to give this lecture. And the people who'd invited me were unaware that the subject they'd invited me to address had its roots in their own buildings. It was one of those sort of accidental academic uh, discoveries. And so I toddled off and became involved in a double detective story. On the one hand, wanting to learn about my family. On the other hand, wanting to learn about the ideas that are at the heart of my work. 
And it is, in a sense, a double detective story. I mean, there is this family secret. I certainly don't want to give it away for your future readers, but about your grandfather, Leon, and we, the reasons why he abandoned his wife and daughter in Vienna and escaped after the Anschluss and escaped uh, to Paris. But it's also an intellectual thriller, perhaps, that culminates um, in the Nuremberg trials around these ideas of, 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 of whether law should be concerned with the individual or, or, or concerned with the group. And I'm interested in these parallels you make. How, how was it that you, you went about telling these two stories at the same time? Surely your editor might have said, well, we just want the, the intellectual part or the legal part, or we just want the personal part. The answer is with great difficulty. Um, I started writing in 2011, and it took five years and four drafts, totally different drafts, each of 125,000 words, uh, under the hands of a remarkable editor uh, in New York at Alfred Knopf, Victoria Wilson. At one point, in about 2013, um, I remember calling my literary agent here in London, Jill Coleridge, and saying to her, it's too complicated, I can't do this. It's two different stories, and why don't we do two books? One that tells the family story, which I can manage, and one that tells the intellectual story, which I can manage. The challenge I'm having is how to meld the two Together, I think I said to Jill and to Vicky, it may be just too much for the reader uh, to cope with. And Jill said, I remember her saying it so clearly, no, you're going to stick with one book because that's what makes this book different. And what is different about it is it links the intellectual and the personal. And in a sense, that is right. The heart of the book is actually a question that touches each and every one of us. And it asks the question, who am I and how do I define myself? Uh, am I Philippe Sands individual with whatever characteristics, qualities, faults I have? Or am I Philippe Sands member of a group? And if so, which group? We're all members of many groups. And so it's a personal exploration, trying to understand where I come from and who I am, and also trying to understand how the law should weave its protective spell. Should it protect you and me, as Lauterpacht wanted, professor at Cambridge, who put crimes against humanity into international law, because of our inherent qualities as individual human beings? Or should the law protect us because we are members of a group and the group deserves protection? So it really goes to the question, who am I? Absolutely. And I think it's a huge success. I really think, you know, if you, you don't mind my saying, I think that's, I'm very glad that you, you, you stuck with the one book rather than the two, because it does, as John le Carre says in Kind Words on the Back, it means there's this combination of love, anger and, and great precision. It has, has a personal and, and that intellectual aspect. And that fundamental question, who am I? You know, am I, am I defined as a human being by my human rights or, or by my group identity? And I wonder, I think I, I can, one could sense the answer that you give the, to this, this question that you're asking yourself as you go through the story. You seem to be drawn to the human rights understanding of, of I am I'm, you know, a member of the species of humanity, and that's the most important thing. But uh, right at the end, you begin to understand, I think, the draw of ideas of the group. Is there something you'd like to... Have I read you correctly? No, you've there? read it absolutely correctly. I'm oscillating throughout. I'm intellectually with Lauterpacht, who has this... 
remarkable idea in 1942 on a commission from the United States to prepare a first international bill of the rights of man. This has never been done before by any academic. There was no draft uh, bill, no rule of international law. The remarkable thing is that until 1945, as a matter of international law, putting aside domestic law, constitutional law, a state was entirely free to treat its citizens as it wished. And that meant torture, killing, disappearing, whatever it wanted to do. The, the, the individual citizen, human being, was effectively the property of the state. And so Laudrupac's idea was, no, that's, that's time to bring that to an end. We'll take the idea in domestic law, constitutional rights, individual rights under domestic law, and internationalize them and say there are constraints on what the state can do. That's a very revolutionary idea back in 1945. Of course, 70 years on, it has, to a certain extent, taken root, but there are still those who say, we want sovereignty, we want to take back control, blah de blah de blah So this battle, um, it, it remains very live. I am, throughout the journey, pretty much with Lauterpack. Yeah. I'm in difficulty intellectually with the idea that I should be protected not because of my inherent qualities or, or as a human being, an individual human being, but to protect the group or groups of which I'm a member. And yet, right at the end of the book, something happens at which, in a sense, you leave the intellectual sphere and you move into the emotional sphere and you understand in the presence of a mass grave that contains a great number of bodies still today that one cannot completely intellectualize these issues. And so there's this constant cross-cutting between the personal and the intellectual, between the head and the heart. It, it, and, it, and, it, and it's complex, and it challenges me as an academic because I've marshaled the skills of a lawyer in writing this book. The voice is unemotional throughout the book, and the research leaves me on many occasions placing the reader in a situation where, because I don't know the answer, I leave it for the reader yeah. to form her or his view on the basis of the evidence. And that's my academic training and my training as a barrister, following the evidence, but not imposing a view on the reader. If I don't know the answer, it's not for me to impose on the reader a view. And it takes me in a particular direction, and yet, and yet, right at the end, I find myself not ditching, not discarding the academic baggage, the intellectual baggage, but recognizing that I'm not just an academic, I'm not just a lawyer, I'm also a human being, a son and a grandson. And the interplay of those uh, different elements is a complex one to marshal. And, and that's both fascinating intellectually and moving personally. I think that's the experience the reader has. I mean, the context for this, of course, is the incredibly evil, genocidal, and I'm using the word now, racist violence of Nazi Germany and the destruction of the bulk of European Jewry. And I think it's here where Lauterpach's ideas that you seem to sympathize with have to be supplemented by his, his intellectual opponent, Raphael Lemkin, who says, look, 
you know, that's all very well to talk about the individual, but look what's happening around us. It is groups that are targeted. And I'm reminded here of Hannah Arendt, who, who German-Jewish political thinker, who rejected ethnicity and gender in politics, but worked for Jewish organizations in this period. And when, when confronted with the contradiction, she said, well, if I'm attacked as a Jew, I defend myself as a Jew. And so, so right at the end, you seem to come around to Lemkin's, or at least an understanding of Lemkin's position, and the sense we are who we are. We are part of families and groups. And it's as that that we're attacked. I think it's just a reality that we can't run away from and over-intellectualize. I mean, I cite to a couple of biologists, E.O. Wilson and others, who just say that at the end of the day there is a biological component that cuts in. Is it biological? Is it psychological? Is it psychoanalytical? Is it psychiatric? What is it? I, it's beyond my expertise to know what it is. What I can do as an international or academic is observe that there is something else that is at play and bring that into the frame. And that's actually really important also for my students. I teach, for example, a course on international courts and tribunals. And I've long recognized from my work as a barrister and as an academic that the law is not something that is mechanically applied. You find yourself in a courtroom in front of a number of judges. The judges have wiggle room where they go at particular moments. The law is not sort of mechanically applied to facts. What cuts in at the moment that a judge jumps one way rather than another way? She or he will bring to the process of reasoning elements that are not purely objective, that are partly subjective, that are partly personal, to inform the process of thinking. And I think our understanding of the law has to recognise that. And part of the intellectual agenda that I have with this book is to say, look, the law is not a mechanical thing. It is not a science. Um, the interjection of the human mind takes it in a number of different places. And I, th I, th I think that comes across very clearly, that not just the law isn't mechanical, but that ideas are not simply abstract. They're embodied in people. And this is a story right at the beginning. You have four main characters. Now, we've talked about three of them. We've talked about your grandfather, Leon Buchholz. We've talked about uh, Lauterpacht and, and Lemkin. And perhaps we'll talk about the fourth, more uh, problematic character in a moment. But, but how interesting a character. Well, indeed. But also that ideas happen in certain places. And can we talk about place for a moment? You know, you go to Lviv, which Lvov, Lemberg, and, and, and Leonopolis, and this is where you say that these ideas were formed. You talk about these ideas of genocide and crimes against humanity, different but, but related ideas, being forged on the anvil, a Galician anvil in some way. What do you mean by that? How are those ideas formed by people, but also formed in, in spaces? and in places? I came to understand through an immense amount of reading, listening, watching old footage and looking at photographs, what Lviv, Lemberg, Lvuf must have been like. In fact, I had one particular essay that really touched me by a Polish writer called Josef Witlin. Um, it only existed in Polish and Spanish, although I later found a version in German. I don't speak Polish, so I struggled with my um, Spanish version, uh, and in fact I'm delighted uh, to have made contact with Vitlin's daughter, who now lives in Madrid. Um, and from Vitlin's essay, I realised that Lviv, Lviv, was this extraordinary cultural cosmopolitan melting pot, essentially three communities in a sort of conflict, 
Poles, the Ukrainians, Ruthenians, and the Jews. And it's impossible for me to escape the conclusion that the ideas of Lauterpacht on individuals and Lemkin on groups, who both passed through the city at almost the same moment, although they didn't overlap, uh, Lemkin was there 21 to 26, Lauterpacht 15 to 19, must have been deeply informed by what they came across. I did a, uh, a, a conversation up in Cambridge uh, a few months ago with a very distinguished uh, historian of the period who asked me sceptically, was I really saying that these ideas could not have been uh, invented in other places? And I said, well, it's not they couldn't have been invented in other places. One can imagine other environments in Middle Europe where that tension between different communities and groups was at the fore, but it's impossible for me to imagine it being invented in London, for example, in the 1920s, because you didn't have the friction that is caused by different communities coming together. Ironically, I think we might have it now, mm. and we might be on the cusp of a new period in this country, the United Kingdom, and in London. And I see certain parallels between London in 2017 and Lviv in 2017, uh, as different uh, communities come together in a conflict situation and we see ideas about rights and about sovereignty and about where power rests in a way that mirrors to a certain extent what happened then. But I do believe that the ideas that emerged in 1945 at the end of the Second World War, it's not a coincidence that they emerged from the minds of individuals who came from a particular space. And you feel that space today. If you spend time in Lviv today, it is possible to imagine, still today, because of the shapes of the buildings, the directions of the streets, the sense of place, the world that they occupied, even though the people have all gone and are changed. And I think the, the image you give of, of pre, pre-war Lviv um, as one of conflict, and as a result, it would naturally be the place for genesis of ideas about conflict between groups as a nice counterpoint to nostalgic ideas of you know, the Habsburg Empire and men playing chess in cafes with newspapers on, on sticks and so on. Um, it's a more, more, more complicated idea. You also actually point very much to this, 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 this uh, feature of the Treaty of Versailles and the Polish law of minorities. This is interesting. Could you tell us a little sure. bit more about that, which seems to be specific. It's not just the Gernius Locke. It's actually an experience of, of a legal system that brings about these ideas. Sure. I mean, I knew about Versailles and I knew about the treaty called the Polish Minorities Treaty, but I hadn't looked at it in detail. And what I wasn't so aware of, or at least I hadn't really thought it through, was that what effectively happened in uh, the summer of 1919 was that Poland or the Polish leaders were told you can have your independence, but the price of independence is you have to protect the rights of minority groups in the new Poland, and we will impose this treaty upon you, which gives them rights of language, rights of education, even the right to petition an international court. So it's an early manifestation of group rights. And so it protects Germans, and it protects Jews, and to a certain extent Armenians and Ruthenians. The one group it doesn't protect is Poles. And so, of course, it creates a backlash. That backlash really comes to the fore with the rise of nationalism in Poland in the late 20s and the early 1930s. And you find here an instance in which, undoubtedly, a well-intentioned treaty has unintended consequences. And that's one thing I've come to see in my work. Interestingly, there was discussion in 1919 
about having a generalised system of rights for all individuals, and the British opposed it because they were concerned about the rights for Chinese in Liverpool or the rights for Irish or the rights for X and Y. And they didn't want um, people in the, in, the, in the Commonwealth, people in, in the colonial uh, territories to get big ideas that uh, they too had rights. And so what happened then, and it was obviously a big mistake given what it caused, uh, was to impose on certain countries, including Poland, an obligation to be subject to international constraints to which the victors were not themselves subject. And I think a lesson was learned in 1945 not to repeat that mistake. And there are arguments throughout the book against laws or rights that protect groups. And it's quite interesting for those of us who haven't thought through the distinction between genocide, which protects groups, and uh, crimes against humanity, which protects individuals. Can you run us through that line, which is basically lauter partien, this, this criticism of genocide and the way in which it can, of the idea of genocide, and the way that it can have adverse effects? Well, the, the best way, I mean, I can explain it intellectually or I can explain it practically. When you do a case on genocide, when you do a case on crimes against humanity or genocide, crimes against humanity, basically, if you've got 100,000 people killed um, unlawfully, systematically, that will be a crime against humanity. The killing of a large number of individuals unlawfully is contrary to international law. To prove a genocide, you have to show, on top of the act of unlawful systematic killing, that the act of killing was motivated by the intention to destroy a group in whole or in part. And what I've experienced firsthand in the Balkans in particular, but also in other places, was that proving the intent to destroy a group in whole or in part tends to reinforce the sense of them and us. In terms of the victims, it reinforces a sense of victimhood as a group, and in terms of in terms of the perpetrators, it reinforces a sense of hatred for a community of people merely because they happen to have X or Y ethnicity or race or religion. And I've seen that firsthand working with prime ministers and foreign ministers and presidents that you'll sit in a room and challenges in proving that motive gets people very, very agitated. In fact, I discovered in a, an archive at Columbia University a wonderful letter written by a friend of Lemkin's, a remarkable individual, actually, Ra uh, Leopold Kaur, K-O-H-R, who really who, who was the, the teacher um, of E.F. Schumacher, who wrote the book Small is Beautiful, a remarkable book also. Kaur writes to Lemkin, and it's not undated, but it must be early 1945, uh, and he says, look... Um, You've written an interesting book. Chapter 9 of your book is called Genocide. And I'm sorry to tell you, you've adopted the same biological path as Adolf Hitler. You are categorizing people as members of a particular community, and that is what Hitler did. And the path you are taking is likely to lead to the same end result. And that gave me pause for thought. Lemkin's answer to that, of course, is yes, but the reality is... People don't get killed in large numbers because of their individual qualities. They get killed in large numbers because they're a member of a group. And the law must reflect that. And so you have here a fundamental tension and a contradiction, which is that a well-intentioned law that is intended to take account of a reality then reinforces that reality.
And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. That letter from Kaur to Lemkin is a very powerful moment in the book where suddenly to us who are used to perhaps thinking of crimes against humanity and genocide as roughly the same idea. Suddenly we're, we're, we're forced to reconsider. Um, so, so we have Lauterpacht and we have Lemkin, who are not quite heroes. They're different characters. Lauterpacht ends up at Cambridge is much more the scholar, more rational, more reserved. And Lemkin is this agitated, febrile character. Um, uh, and I'm not perhaps asking you to choose between them personally, but it's clear that ideas are embodied in people. But we also have a villain, um, uh, and a real, real historical villain, namely um, Hans Frank, uh, the governor of the general gouvernement. The, the occupied Poland, which wasn't incorporated into Reich. How does he fit here? And why did you feel that alongside Lauterpacht and Lemkin, you wanted to have Hans Frank, one of the real uh, uh, you know, perpetrators of the Second World War, as, one of, as a, a character alongside the other two? So dear Hans Frank arrived late to the story. Uh, in 2012, I'd already done pretty much a first draft which focused on three individuals, my grandfather Leon, Lauterpacht individuals, Lemkin groups. Then I'm starting to read myself into what happened in Lviv, Lvov, Lemberg. And I come across the events of the summer of 1942. Frank's territory has expanded to include the province of Galicia. This happens after Operation Barbarossa, when Hitler went east into the Soviet Union. And he arrives on the 1st of August 1942 in uh, Lemberg, as it's called once again, and delivers a great speech, actually in a room in which I've given a lecture, um, and which I was unaware that he had spoken in that very same spot where I, I had been. And he announces on the 1st of August the elimination of the Jews of Lemberg and of Galicia. And in the weeks that follow, more or less the totality of Lemkin's family, my grandfather's family, and Lauterpak's family are eliminated, are killed, are murdered. And so Frank becomes the connecting point between the three individuals. And I start reading myself in to Frank and learn more about him. He was a lawyer, highly cultured, friend of Richard Strauss, very intellectual, uh, had been the head of the German Academy of Law in the 1930s, thought a lot about law, thought a lot about international courts, international criminal court uh, even, and uh, immersed myself in him and his thinking. I came to know his son, who gave me access to his diaries and his letters with his wife, and found the human side of him. Because, of course, the question we always ask oneself is how could someone who was so highly educated, an intellectual, a thinker, a man of culture, get involved in such horrors? It's a question I'm unable to answer. I think most people are unable to answer, but he emerges as the fourth man. And of course, remarkably, and again, unexpectedly, as I carry through the story, Lauterpacht and Lemkin both become prosecutors at the Nuremberg trial. Lauterpacht's with the Brits, pushing for crimes against humanity. Lemkin's with the Americans, pushing for genocide. And they're prosecuting Frank. And they don't know when the trial starts that Frank is responsible for the killing of their entire families. They only discover that right at the end of the family. So a great drama unfolds in the summer of 46 uh, as the two men make this discovery. And, of course, I take the reader through that journey. Now, this is a question I think one always has to ask when someone writes about perpetrators. You do present the human side of, of Frank. You present his wife and his children and his questions of his sexuality and his interest in culture. 
Are you worried that um, to comprendre, c'est to pardonner, that to understand everything is, is to forgive everything? Are you worried about the way in which Frank is presented as a, a, a real human being alongside these other characters? Absolutely not. He is a real human being. Uh, one of my favorite films uh, is Downfall, The Last Days of Adolf Hitler. And what I love about the film is the very reason that it was so critiqued, because it shows the human side of Hitler. Hitler was a human being. Frank was a human being. Frank had a wife. Frank had a lover. Frank had children. The interactions with those individuals and with the group that they formed a part of helps us, I think, to explain and understand to a certain extent what truly motivated him. So, for example, there's this moment in the summer of 42 absolutely coincident with the acts of killing in Lemberg where an old flame reappears in his life and he uses her reappearance, Lily Grau, whose son is lost on the Eastern Front. She approaches Frank, can you help me find my son? Frank decides to help, but they fall in love again. The flames of passion are reunited. The letters are literally unbelievable. And in July 42, Frank decides to use the final solution to get a divorce. It's in black and white in the letters. That humanizes, but it also helps us understand the human mind. What kind of human mind is it where a man says to his wife, look, I'm about to get involved in something that is so terrible, it would be better for you and the children if you gave me a divorce. And you can understand that at that point, the criminality in which he is embarked is something he is totally aware of, that he is using it, but he is um, eliminating it and using it to satisfy immediate personal and emotional and sexual needs. I think that is the way to understand how human beings function. There's no great grand plan. It boils down to sex and love and desire and very ordinary human emotions. I mean, I totally agree with you. I think that one just has to ask that sort of question. I also think that Frank has a role in the intellectual story because in Nuremberg, what the the court shows is that individuals have rights that national states can't trample on, on the one hand, for the, the victims of violence, but it also shows that individuals have international duties that transcends their obligation for, of obedience to national states. So, but, you know, Frank is in the dock, absolutely, as a human being. And as um, an individual. Um. And I've often imagined that moment when Frank is given a copy of his indictment. He's an intelligent lawyer. Uh, He reads the indictment, and the indictment refers to these two concepts, crimes against humanity uh, and genocide. We're October 1945. Uh, He will look at this indictment, and he will say to himself, what is this? Was is das? These terms are totally alien to me. I'm being prosecuted for crimes that did not exist in terms of the time when the acts occurred. And so that issue of retroactive justice, retroactive criminality, which is very problematic for international law, is there because he too has rights. Um, He is, for me, an absolutely fascinating individual. Um, It's I I suppose where I've come out is that this idea of Arendt's, of the banality of evil, is not right. He's an intellectual man. He knows exactly what he is doing. There's a remarkable moment uh, when, in 1935, uh, he is the head of the German Academy of Law. 
He has a big congress in Berlin. He invites to Berlin the professor of criminal law at the Sorbonne, Henri Donnedieu de Vabre. De Vabre arrives, delivers a great speech about the need for a new international criminal court. Frank responds and says, what a nonsense. It's never going to happen. States are too different. I mean, it actually replicates debate today in various parts of the world on whether we should have an international criminal court. Fast forward 10 years, and Frank is in the dock, as you mentioned. And one of the judges who will judge him is Henri Donnelieu de Vavre. You couldn't invent it. And remarkably, uh, as you know from the book, uh, as I search voraciously for individuals who are involved in the trial, I come across... Uh, Donnelly de Vabre's legal assistant at the trial, who's actually his nephew, Yves Begbeder, lovely man. And I mentioned to Begbeder about his uncle's trip to Berlin in 35, and there's a silence on the end of the telephone, which I won't easily forget. The nephew was unaware that his uncle had been invited to Berlin, had dined with Hans Frank, and there was a personal connection between them. That actually plays a role later on. If you move to September 46 in the moment of the judgment, I then discover in the archives at Syracuse University uh, a wonderful little handwritten note from another judge, the American judge Francis Biddle, when it comes to the question of sentencing uh, of Hans Frank. Biddle writes in hand, De Vabre curiously tender towards Frank. And the only way to understand that is it's a reflection of a personal interaction that has occurred 10 years earlier. The personal always comes back. The idea that you can exclude it from great decisions being taken is a nonsense. And it comes back to your, your earlier question, we have to humanise to understand. One, one can't um, over, overstate the amount of research and archival uh, work that's gone into just tracing up uh, various pieces of different sorts and ringing people up throughout the world. And in that, you don't just find evil, you also find goodness. And I think that's interesting. And Miss Tilney of Norwich is this extraordinary um, character. Uh, uh, perhaps you'd like to say something about her, the only female uh, protagonist uh, here. Well, she's, she's one of the female protagonists. In fact, one of the things I discovered was that there are lots of spouses who play an absolutely huge role. There are, for example, at Nuremberg Trial, very few women involved, but the women who are involved are central. The best journalistic writing on Nuremberg is by women. Janet Flanner, the correspondent for The New Yorker, Martha Gellhorn, uh, and Rebecca West. And they are able, I think, to observe with a different level of insight that the male writers have. And we can think about... Um, why that is. But the heart of the book at a personal level is a lady called Miss Tilney. I, I discovered before I got off to Lviv for the first time in the summer of 2010, I asked my mum whether she's got any papers from my grandfather. I've never seen anything. I'm 50 years old and I've seen nothing. My mum gives me two battered old briefcases and in the briefcases I found lots of pieces of paper and photographs and passports and documents and things. And one of them is a tiny scrap of paper which simply says, Miss E.M. Tilney, Manuka, Bluebell Road, Norwich, Angleterre. And I say to my mother, well, who's this? Why, why is this paper here? She says, I don't know. And it's plain that she sort of knows, but doesn't want to open that door. And I spend three and a half years trying to find Miss Tilney, and eventually I find her. She's the woman who saved my mother's life, uh, who brought her from Vienna to Paris in the summer of 1939, in difficult circumstances, 
The more I got into Miss Tilney, the more I wanted to know what motivated her. I've come to know her community, the Surrey Chapel in Norwich, an extraordinarily wonderful evangelical Christian community, incredibly decent people. What I learn, and for me it's interesting as someone who's interested in text and interpretation of law, but also of other forms of writing, was that she was motivated by a single line from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, verse 1, which her pastor, David Panton, interprets in a particular way and calls upon her to save people from harm. So she's a missionary, basically bringing, trying to bring Muslims and Jews to Jesus, not, it seems, very successfully. And one of the things I'm called on, in a sense, to explore is what is she driven by? Is she driven by ideology or is she driven by humanity? And I was helped uh, in this. I had wonderful conversations with the writer Jeanette Winterson, whose mother was an evangelical Christian lady, and she helped me interpret Miss Tilney's actions. They're plainly humanitarian in Jeanette's views and in my view also. Uh, and, and that was an interesting insight. I've had a huge correspondence uh, in relation to the book. Uh, I've just, um, in the past weeks, been reviewing the 1,550 uh, letters and emails I've received, each of one of which I've replied to, I think, um, for a little set of extras for the uh, paperback edition that will be at Waterstones, sort of afterward, the reactions that I've had. And it's plain that the character who excites and inspires people the most is Miss Tilney. And, and for a book that ends by a mass grave in the forest with, in quite a bleak fashion, although a moment of understanding, we also find out that another ending to the book is that uh, she is registered as one of the righteous among the nations at Yad Vashem um, as a result of the research that, 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 that you put into to her story. As a final question, I think really we, we have to ask, what about today? This isn't a story about the past. It's a story in many ways about how the world we live in was has been made in Nuremberg in our thinking about international law and obligations and the way in which societies cope with violence. Um, what does your book have to say to Europe post-Brexit, the Amer America with Donald Trump in charge, with uh, rising uh, 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 forms of nationalism and xenophobia throughout the continent? Uh, what's the message that your book perhaps uh, gives today? I... I and my publishers have been surprised by the take-up of the book, and in part I think that has to be explained by the fact that it happened to come out at a moment when many of the elements of the 1930s appear possibly to be on their way back, a sort of form of populism, whether it's Brexit or President Trump or Marine Le Pen or whatever, um, and that I think cuts into it. And certainly the correspondence I've had would tend to confirm that it has resonated because people are anxious today. The Nuremberg moment was part of a bigger moment. 1945, the world changed in the sense that it said there would be international law constraints on what a state could do. Seventy years on from that, we're in a moment where some states are saying, um, we want to be great again, we want to take back control, we want our sovereignty, which I understand to mean... In effect, we want to be able to kill people if that's what we want to do. And so I think there is a risk of an unravelling of the settlement that was made in 1945. And I, I tend to be an optimist. In the long run, I think it will be fine. But life is a few steps forward, a few steps sideways, a few steps back, a few steps forward 
again. And I think that the settlement of 1945 right now, whether it's the European Convention on Human Rights, the European Union, uh, the International Criminal Court, is plainly under challenge. And it's a matter of interest to me that there has been, in our political classes, a sort of collective loss of historical memory. What happened in the 1930s can happen again in Europe. It has happened again in other parts of the world. And I think we need to be very careful uh, going forward to recognize that human beings are capable of being very malign. That did not end in 1945. And warts and all, the European institutions that we put in place at that particular moment have given us a degree of relative peace, prosperity, and tranquility that we should think very carefully about before we shred them and tear them up. And I think people will start thinking carefully about them, actually. Philippe, with those words of, of, of warning, serious warning, but also cautious optimism, I think we'd better bring this to a close. Um, we've been talking about uh, Philippe Sands' East-West Street on the origins of genocide and crimes against humanity. It's out in paperback today, Watson's uh, Book of the Month for April. Philippe Sands, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Terrific to have this conversation. Thank you.